G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. Look, I'm married to a woman who looks at things and says, this is terrible, I should do something about it. I'm going to do something about it. I look at the same thing and tend to go, well, you know, it's terrible, somebody should do something. (laughs) So um, I don't get off the hook. The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, last time, Joan Grosser from Perth told us about the wonderful ministry that she and her husband Bill have been involved in for several years in India. It's a hospice that takes care of terminally ill patients. Unfortunately, she ran out of time just before she was about to tell us the story about mangoes. So without further ado, here's Joan chatting once again with Eric Scadabo, and we'll finally get to hear what that mango story is all about. Joan, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's good to be back. Glad to have you with us. And what was this mango story that you were so <laughs> anxious to tell well, me about? How God links things together. Mm-hmm. We were in Kananara in Western Australia, right up the very top, mm-hmm. doing a parenting program. For 30 years, we've been doing teaching people how to raise godly children. Mm-hmm. And um, this guy came along to this meeting we were having. And he didn't want to be there. He was a bit angry about it, but his wife sort of forced him to. <laughs> and uh, when he walked in, we knew God had put his hand on him. And two weeks later, he came, became a Christian and handed his life over to the Lord. Mm. And then he rang us up and he said, look, I've got 800 tr- mango trees. And um, I'm wondering if I could send you down 100 boxes of mangoes to sell the money for that thing you do in India. And we said, sure, we'll sell them. So the first year we made about five six thousand dollars from the mangoes. Second wow. year he sent us two hundred boxes, and then the third year he said, "Look, I won't be able to do any mangoes this year because my wife's not well, mm. and we won't be able to pick them." And I said, "Oh, um, what will happen to the mangoes?" He said, "Well, they'll just drop on the ground." So I said, "Well, if we can bring a team up to pick them, can we have them?" And he said, "Yes." So from then we've had the mango story and every year we've raised, um, well now, two years ago, we raised $100,000 just through picking mangoes. But the beauty of it is we take up a team of young people and older people who give their time to do this totally free of charge and they work in 40 degree heat picking mangoes from 5 o'clock in the morning till 4 o'clock in the afternoon and we sell those mangoes all over Western Australia and we raise the money to support the hospice. Um, it's just been an amazing thing because it's drawn so many people into understanding about the work of the hospice, mm-hmm. but also in Kananara, the relationships we've made there have been very, very special. So that's our mango story. Wow. So, yeah, so the people in India know that we sweat like crazy um, <laughs> to get money for their hospice. Uh, when the young people get to Kananara, the first devotion we do comes from Isaiah chapter 58, which talks about true fast. What is the true fast? And he says it's not just stopping 
eating chocolate at Easter or something or other. Mm -hmm. He says, this is caring for the widows and those in distress. And so I say to those young people, this is your true fast, coming up here, picking mangoes in the sweating heat so that you can help people who are in great need. Mm-hmm. And so our mango story continues, and we don't have to go out looking for people to help. They come willingly year after year, and they can be as young as 13 years of age, but they give their time willingly, and they get involved with Ruma Abadona Hospice. Fantastic. Picking mango is for the Lord. Yes. Or I, sh- I should say for the Lord's work, because then this money helps to finance the hospice in yes. India, which you talked about last time, which is being with people, comforting them in their final days when they're dying from a terminal illness. Yes. Yes. And and the money's done things like buy two cars because um, they go out in teams to the home and care for the people in their home mm-hmm. in just a beautiful way. They have a team of four people, a registered nurse, um, a counsellor, a person who does massage and dressings, and a person who drives the car. It's just, when when I, when I look at it, it's just an amazing thing, mm. something caring and compassion such as I rarely ever see. So this ministry is ministering to these poor people who have terminal illnesses. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. a wonderful ministry. Well, thank you so much for sharing about that. Now we want to hear from your husband, Bill, and hear his side of the story. Can you hand the phone over to Bill? I will hand the phone over to Bill, and he'll give you another side of it. Okay, <laughs> that's right. Thank you. Thank you. G'day, Bill here. I don't know which other side I'm going to give you, but I'll give you something. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for joining us. We heard last time that your dad and Joan's dad knew each other from before you were even born. That's right. Um, They met um, when my dad was about 19 or 20, I think, and uh, became firm friends, and he was best man at dad's wedding. Yeah. Yeah, so we've known, Joan and I have known each other all her life. Yeah, yeah. So you were four years old when Joan was born. That's right. So I'm 82 right now, and she's 78, and we've still got... Her favorite verse in the Bible is, I will run to my grave with vigor. <laughs> Job five twenty six. So you guys grew up together, were good friends. When did it become romantic? When did you become a couple? You know, we were a bit sweet on each other when, um, when we were younger, but... Um, uh, it wasn't until Joan was 16 that I plucked up the courage to say to her father, can I take her out? Mm-hmm. And he said, um, yes, but you will have her home at 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And he said, don't come back here anytime soon and say, can you marry her? Because the answer is no already. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where how it all started on the tennis court. I think Joan probably mentioned that um, it started on the tennis court, ended in a love set, but we went to Juice uh, quite a few times. We (laughs) broke up and it was all to do with our walk with God that um, needed to get things straight. Hmm. So both of you were young Christians at that time as you were teenagers? Yes, we were. Um, Joan was 16, I was 20. It was the same year, actually. We both really surrendered to God, but we had a lot of learning to do. Mm Mm-hmm. And then eventually you married? We married, um, yes, seven years after I started taking her out in 1965. And, uh, yeah, finally got her down the aisle. Hmm. <laughs> All righty. And then just three months after you were married, you were challenged to go to India. 
as missionaries. That's right. Joan was already pregnant, and mm-hmm. um, we couldn't see that that would even be a possibility with everything I think Joan mentioned about we'd bought a house and I was running a business and we were in a thriving church and it didn't seem like even a possibility. But there you go. After 18 months of marriage, we have found ourselves in Madras, as it was then, with a team of 10. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that was in 1966? 1966 is correct. Mm-hmm. And in 67, we transferred to lead a new team in Calcutta, leaving the old team behind in Madras. And you mm. served there for two years? Well, it was a bit over two years, and um, at the end of that, uh, Joan ran a missionary guest house down on the Nilbury Hills for mm-hmm. a season. So we had a bit over three years in India altogether. Now, Joan shared that you kind of started a love affair with India. You just fell in love with the people. Is that right? Was that the case for you as yes. well? Yes. Yes, and uh, people say to us now, you know, why do you go to Calcutta for a holiday? And Yeah, that's not the usual destination. No, it's <laughs> certainly not, and you wouldn't want to go there for a holiday, but it's the people that draw us back, and uh, particularly, we, our love affair is particularly with the Bengalis, mm-hmm. who I describe as like the Italians of India, they're very expressive, mm-hmm. um, can, things can flare up pretty quick, um, but they're very hospitable, and uh, we just love being with them. Mm-hmm. And they got a good sense of humor, too, which suits me. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you served there as missionaries for three years, but then you came to the realization that you could serve them better by supporting the local people doing ministry. That is true, mm-hmm. um, because we recognized that it wouldn't matter how long we stayed there, and we had worked with missionaries who'd been there a long time. Yeah. We would never fully understand the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, the My Bengali is... Um, is sparse, but mm. I get by, but yeah. um, it's not good enough to really deeply disciple people. So mm. our slant was to come home, support some people. In fact, they were n- uh, new believers, really. Uh, Guy Sunil had given his heart to the Lord through a previous crusade in Calcutta where he bought a gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we supported them for the next, well until they died, actually. Hmm. So you've been involved in helping people in ministry in India for over 50 years. That is right, and um, we feel that's a real blessing. Look, it, it's very interesting. We, I'm a bricklayer, Joan's a nurse. We mm-hmm. don't, we're not one of the big uh, people who knows everything. Uh, we just know that um, God's called us to love him, mm-hmm and to love others. And um, we do that in the best way that we know how, albeit sometimes faltering. Mm-hmm. And um, God gets the glory for anything that has transpired as a result of that. You're listening to The Story. Our guest today is Bill Grosser, and before him, we heard from his wife, Joan. And together, they're sharing about their life of service to the Lord that has led them to do some remarkable things both here in Australia and also in India. We'll hear more of their story when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. 
Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're continuing with Bill Grosser from Perth, chatting with Eric Scadabo about his and his wife, Joan's story. Together, they've served many people, both in India and here in Australia. Actually, they do much of the ministry in Australia to support the ministry back in India. Now, here's more of Bill sharing their story. Look, I'm married to a woman who looks at things and said, this is terrible, I should do something about it. I'm going to do something about it. Mm-hmm. I look at the same thing and tend to go, well, you know, it's terrible, somebody should do something. <laughs> and so um, I don't get off the hook because, um, you know, she came home one day and said, oh, well, I came home from work, I was teaching at TAFE, uh-huh. and she was really discouraged by what was happening in the school our children were in. She said, I, I want to start a Christian school in Midland. And that resulted in a new school, Midland Christian School, opening oh, less than, it was about eight months later, I think, that wow. uh, it wow. opened its doors. And then the following year was a high school, and the next year was another primary school, and the next year was two, uh, two pre-primary centres, and they were all um, staffed by believers and had a Christian influence on kids. Wow, mm. so look out when she gets a heart for something. Yeah, yeah. And I don't just get dragged along in the wake. I'm part of it. Yeah, but yeah. the vision normally, not always, but normally will start with her. Mm-hmm. Tell us some of the other ministries that you've been involved in here in Australia. Uh, like uh, the parenting ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working, I was pastoring a church and got sent to U.S. for a church growth seminar. Mm -hmm. And while we are there, we found parenting material, which we figured may work in our church. So we brought it home and um, started using it, and people started hearing about it, and that eventually took over our lives for a period of time. And it spread all over Australia, and then we had the opportunity to take it to Singapore and over to uh, Africa, South Africa and Zimbabwe. And, um, yeah, so it's been uh, pretty exciting. And it's not one of those things that we could have engineered. We see it very much as um, God did it. Yeah. Um, we just uh, were the tools he chose to use for at that time. So in 1996, you founded a ministry called Growing Families Australia, so Christian That's Parenting. That's yes. And it's gone from Australia to other parts of the world. That's wonderful. It has, yes. The The original material was um, from the US. Mm-hmm. We've modified some of that, um, and as recent as 10 years ago, started um, developing it for the Aboriginals uh, for the Kimberley region. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things um, eventually need to be handed over to others. We don't mm-hmm. sort of start something and then saying, this is ours. Yeah. Um, we want to hand things on so that um, God's Word and God's work is done by other people. So that was an exciting project um, <laughs> that uh, that came out of seeing a need for um, Aboriginal families to have something to, if you like, get their teeth into in parenting. Mm-hmm. So parenting from a Christian perspective in a godly, biblical way. That's correct, yes. Yes. Um, Without it being Western or um, European, because Mm -hmm. um, both in India and here, we've seen that that actually doesn't work that well. Mm -hmm. And we worked with Aboriginal people and uh, we had some 
really uh, strong Aboriginal people who were able to look us in the eye and say, no, that's not going to work, you can't do that. Mm. And uh, we were able to hear their message, which has been uh, quite brilliant, really. Wow. Now, looking back over your over 50 years of service in various types of Christian ministries, both in India and here in Australia, what was uh, one of the most fulfilling things that you've been a part of over the years? You know, I find that a difficult question to answer because so much of it has been fulfilling. Hmm. Um, But probably the most has been the work with the hospice Mm -hmm. in that we are working entirely with people who were Mm pre-Christian. All of the workers in the hospice are new believers or people who are coming to, to faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been extremely fulfilling, but I could go through each of the ministries and say, you know what, huh. that was absolutely brilliant what God did. I mean, the school was just a stunning uh, thing to go from yeah. nothing in um, five months from when uh, the dream came or the vision came to the school opening. And there was 58 kids at the end of the first term, 78 and then the next year, that school had 180, and the high school started with 70, 70 or 80 kids. And the next year, another primary. And it was just seeing God's people from a whole range of uh, denominational backgrounds to working together for a common cause, mm. to see men who in their churches often felt that they were pretty useless, but in the school, they could do brick paving or... Um, gardening or work with their hands and that's what men need to do and so working shoulder to shoulder with men they often opened their hearts Mm. and eventually gave their hearts to Christ if they weren't already believers Mm. so yeah I guess that's a long answer to a short question but the reality is that everything has been fulfilling you know Mm -hmm. with the parenting ministry now we're engaging with um young people who grew up in uh, growing families, if you like, growing families' homes from a range of denominations, and they are saying, we want to bring our kids up the way we were brought up with, Hmm. which is probably different from the norm where kids spend a lot of time complaining about what their parents did. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of those are engaged with us in other ministries that we're involved in, like the hospice. So it sounds like there's this overall theme of see a need, meet a need, see a need, meet a need. And so you saw a need in India, so you were supportive there. You saw a need for parenting skills, so you started that ministry, saw a need for a school. Uh, You probably won't want your wife to be looking around too much anymore because she might find another need somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) She's looking around already, don't worry. Um, You know, when I was um, a young fellow at Bible College, um, one of the things was the need does not constitute the call, and I buy that. Mm. But on the other hand, if there is no need, there probably will not be a call. Mm. And so we see many other needs, but we are not equipped or we do not have the capacity or the headspace or the heart or whatever it is to actually fulfill that need. So I think doing what um, we do is probably all that we can do at this point. (laughs) Now, you had a decision to make when you were 
married for just three months. You could have just had that comfortable life as a bricklayer. But you chose the path, uh, very uncomfortable, of going to India and starting all these ministries. Uh, do you have any regrets for the path that you chose? <laughs> no, no regrets at all. It's funny, you know, when I was a kid at school, I was doing very well academically, but I wanted to become a bricklayer. Hmm. And I was called into the principal's office, uh, Mr. Glue, and he said, son, you will regret this decision. And I jokingly say these days, I probably will one day, but it hasn't come yet. <laughs> and <laughs> the, uh, becoming a bricklayer was, um, I'm so glad I did that before I went into any real ministry because it's given me a practical aspect to life and mm. uh, the ability to relate to men who otherwise may look at me and say, oh, you're just a preachy, that's what you're supposed to mm. say. Yeah. Um, so no regret about that. I was it scary? Yes. I mean, you you've been on a good income, and suddenly you're dependent on God to supply your needs. Mm -hmm. And um, things like the a butcher turned up on our doorstep before we left for India, well before, with half a sheep all cut up, and and he wanted to give that to us to support us. And Joan was saying, well, you know what. Bill's earning good money. We don't need this. And he just looked at her and he said, Joan, do not rob me of the joy of giving. Mm. I want to be part in this with you. And that was our introduction to receiving physical stuff or uh, financial stuff from God so that we could engage in the ministry. There were many scary times. Mm -hmm. And yet God has been faithful. Any final story you want to leave our listeners with today? Can I say that what I think what a lot of um, Christians miss is that other people have a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And um, when we were leaving Madras to go to Calcutta, um, the church that we we're at called us out to the front and presented us with an ele elephant. Uh, <laughs> and um, we still have that. And they said to us, you know, this is the first time that we have had foreigners as part of our church who we felt were one of us. Mm. And I said, so what makes you... F I said, that's a great compliment, but what makes you feel that? And they said, oh, we've talked about that. You joked with us. Mm. That's what we... You, you teased us. That's what we <laughs> do to each other. And we just felt you're one of us. And, and I think, you know, that's been a, a sort of a hallmark. I am mm. a bit of a clown. I like <laughs> to mess around. But I mean... Uh <laughs> You have to be real and get to know people, yes. and humor is a gift from God. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. it, as the old um, uh, saying goes, it's the best medicine, mm -hmm. um, and it also breaks down a lot of barriers. Yep, yep. Yeah. So with humor and with the rich giving and being blessed by people in India and also in Australia, it sounds like you've had a pretty rich and fulfilling life. Ah. Uh, I would say so, um, <laughs> very loud and clear. Um, other people may think that we've been, you know, silly in some ways. We're not, we haven't ended up life rich. Mm. Um, our kids won't get a great inheritance from us. They've got more money than we've got, actually. <laughs> but um, Joan's dad said to us once, you know, why would you want God to reward you for what you leave to him mm. when you no longer have any use for it? He said, give to God and his work while you're alive and he could have been a very rich man uh, but when he passed away 
most of his money had gone into Christian work long before, and the last 20,000 actually bought the land for the hospice. Hmm. And, and I don't think everyone should do what we did. There are very good reasons why people accumulate funds to actually give to God's work, and I'm grateful for those because in, in the works that we're involved in, we are beneficiaries of that. But if you look at what we've done in a purely uh, physical way, we haven't been very smart. Hmm. Um, but if you look at it from God's perspective, hopefully he says, you know what, I'm glad you did that hmm. because you did it as unto me. Amen. Hmm. And your reward in heaven will be plentiful. You know, that's a, a great statement. Um, I think the reward that we have already is just brilliant. So mm -hmm. if we got no more than the smile of the master, that would be reward enough. Amen. Well yeah. put. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing with us today. Thank you so much. That was Eric Scadabo chatting with Bill Grosser. And before him, Eric also chatted with his wife, Joan, who told the incredible mango story of how people from all over Western Australia have been picking mangoes to support the rumour hospice ministry they're involved in back in India. And I thought it was great how every group that comes to pick the mangoes is first taught what the Bible says about true fasting. Now, when we think of fasting, we usually think of giving up things like sweets and chocolates. But in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 58, it says that true fasting is about sacrificing in a different way. It says, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and to set the oppressed free? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them? If you do this, then your light will break forth like the dawn. These words from the Bible present a challenge to all of us regarding true fasting. The prophet Isaiah is telling us if we are true worshippers, then we will not ignore the plight of the destitute among us, but will extend help and compassion where we are able. Profound words for all of us to think about. Well, if you'd like to learn more about how you can help the terminally ill patients in India that Bill and Joan have been talking about, you can go to the ministry website. It's rumorhospice.org. Once again, that's rumor, R-U-M-A, hospice.org. Well, thanks for joining us for part two of Bill and Joan Gross's story. Until next time, I'm Jimmy Colfax encouraging you to share your story with someone today. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.